Good afternoon and welcome to the 132nd of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, I discuss COVID-19 and medical education with Charles Cairns, the Dean of the Drexel University School of Medicine. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, September 22nd, 2020, there are 31,433,180 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally. According to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center, that's up from 31,110,407 cases yesterday. 6,882,969 of those are in the United States. That's up from 6,816,046 reported yesterday. There are now a total of 200,477 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States, up from 199,636 reported yesterday. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. And I'd like to continue that now with a really moving story that was published in the Washington Post May 2nd by William Liakos. And the title is, My Grandfather Died of COVID-19. More empathy from everyone may have prevented such deaths in this pandemic. I am a medical student. This is William Liakos. I am a medical student in my third year of studies. For medical students, this is the point at which, after two years of book learning, we rotate through hospital clerkships, clerkships that give us our first experience of delivering hands-on care to inpatients. Earlier in the year, it feels like many lifetimes ago, I read that COVID-19 was just the flu. We heard from scientific sources and popular media that other maladies were much worse and that it would be a mistake to overreact to this one. Like many people, I accepted these assurances without too much concern. It all seemed a bit remote to me, the way I imagine issues like food stamps may seem to a politician who's never needed them. But now all of that has changed for me. It's not just that my hospital clerkships have been changed into online electives. I wish it were only that. On April 3rd, my grandfather died of COVID-19. He was the last of my grandparents still living, and we were close. His name was John Diaz. Growing up, I called him my data, and over the past few years, JD. He was 82 and eccentric, a native New Yorker and an engineer by trade. He lived in Philadelphia and achieved success in his field, but his heart was in the arts, theater, literature, visual arts, ballet, and music. His favorite, I think, was theater. In his spare time, he acted in community theater productions, and his obituary in the Philadelphia Inquirer paid tribute to his resonating stage voice and dashing physical presence. But literature and reading were a close second. I think of how immediately upon seeing me, he'd always hand me a new book to read, good-naturedly saying, here's your assignment, so that we could discuss it later over the phone. Sometimes the book was a classic, like Brave New World, but more often it was a secondhand edition of an out-of-print book on Byzantine languages or an autobiography written by the obscure dictator of a small island nation. 
He loved learning, continuing to take college classes well into his later years, and I think this was his way of trying to pass it along. I knew that my grandfather's chronic obstructive pulmonary disease would put him at high risk of complications or death if he were to catch the virus, but I still couldn't imagine that he might actually be affected. It was truly too scary to think about. As a medical student, I've absorbed many lessons in empathy. Still, it took this deep personal loss to fully bring home to me the pandemic's effects. Now I understand much more clearly what I saw months ago in the videos from China, which showed doctors dying of the virus and lockdowns choking off normal life. Now I also can feel in a visceral way the pain, fear, and grief that the people in these videos must have felt. I know that countless others now share this massively heightened sense of urgency about the coronavirus, but I keep wondering what factors blunted our awareness at first. I've concluded that a major deficiency in our country's early response was a lack of empathy. It seems to me, looking at the big picture, that the defining response in the United States was an inability to put ourselves in the shoes of someone else who lived across the globe. What if we'd imagined ourselves living the plight of Chinese residents trapped in Wuhan during the first stages of the pandemic, or of the Italian doctors forced to triage ventilators and deny them to people over a certain age? Might a deeper sense of empathy and urgency actually have led us to put together a response that was more pragmatic and more effective? If we had recognized the events in other countries, felt their pain and heeded their warnings and then responded proactively with testing and other preparations as did South Korea and Singapore, I believe that we could have achieved immensely better results than what we're now seeing with our hospitals and clinicians overwhelmed and countless people who like me are grieving or lost loved ones. Amid this crisis, I believe that we as a nation need to choose between two conflicting impulses to turn inward and blame outsiders for our current troubles or to come together as a member of the global community and to reach out and embrace the experiences of other people in other nations through empathy and compassion. For me, the choice seems clear. I keep coming back to Benjamin Franklin's maxim, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. I believe that an ounce of empathy could have been, and in many states in the country might still be, our best method of prevention. I can't help thinking that if we had exercised that kind of empathy, and had prepared better for the pandemic, I might still have my grandfather with me today. The story, again, my grandfather died of COVID-19 by William Leacos, which appeared May 2nd, 2020 in the Washington Post. Well, I'm really excited to speak with my guest today. Let's turn to the conversation and let me introduce him. Dr. Charles B. Cairns, MD, is the Walter H. and Leonore Annenberg Dean of the College of Medicine and Senior Vice President for Medical Affairs at Drexel University, where he serves as Professor of Medicine and Emergency Medicine. Dr. Cairns has served as Director of the NIH United States Critical Illness and Injury Trials Group and as Principal Investigator of the National Collaborative for Biopreparedness. He's published over 200 scientific articles and reviews and secured more than $30 million in research funding. And although I can't read his many accomplishments, let me give you just a sense. Dr. Cairns has received numerous honors and awards, including the ACEP Outstanding Contribution and Research Award, EMF Established Investigator Award, National Foundation of Emergency Medicine Mentor Scholar Award, SCCM Presidential Citation Award and the SAEM John Marks Leadership Award, the highest award in academic emergency medicine. Charles Cairns, thank you so much for making time to come on COVID Calls today. Pleasure to be here, Scott. Thank you for having me. 
I'm going to start the way I usually do and just find out where you're calling in from and what the pandemic situation is looking like there today. I'm calling in from Tucson, Arizona. Uh, and uh, Arizona's been uh, on the downward spiral of what was a very high peak uh, a month ago. Unfortunately, it's ticking back up. And uh, so clearly, uh, we're feeling the pressure. It's a university town, and so the students have come back. But it's also one of these places where uh, adherence to kind of social distancing and mask wearing has not been uniform. Can you give us a sense of what you ascribe that recent uptick to? Is it really to the students returning to campuses or are there other factors at play here? I think there are a lot of factors at play, Scott. I mean, the main ones are that this is a very infectious virus. And it, uh, one, of the, one of the examples I bring is that a national laboratory the Los Alamos National Laboratory did an estimate of how many people get infected uh, by one person with coronavirus, uh, COVID-19. And they found that on average, 4.5 to up to five people get infected. Influenza, that number's about 2.5. And frankly, common colds are gonna be somewhere near that as well. So this is a very infectious virus. The other key problem is that 40% of the people who have been infected with the virus have no symptoms. So they don't even know they have the virus and therefore are capable of infecting other people. So those two factors combined is one of the big challenges with this virus. So of course, you can infect people without knowing you're infected and your chance of infecting someone can be very high if we don't do things like wear a mask or social distance. So which of those factors comes about at any one time is difficult. Certainly young people have a behavioral uh, component that has been talked a lot about, but frankly, I think it's very difficult for anyone to be 100% uh, compliant with wearing a mask and social distancing, much less being in a dormitory with a bunch of other folks for the first time if you're a freshman in college. So I suspect there are lots of factors, Scott, uh, that lead to these increases in university towns. Well, we let's go back a little bit. We can't touch on every aspect of your of your background uh, as a leader in research and and in medical school education, but but maybe we can get a sense of it from you. In your career, what has prepared you for this moment? What are some of the things you've looked back on and said, you know, really glad I was paying attention to that lesson that year, or something maybe you didn't even realize you were learning that you've now deployed in these last months? You know, one of the things that, that I learned was uh, back at a project that I uh, started when I was chair of the emergency medicine department at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Uh, at the time, we were tracking every emergency department visit in the state. We were tracking every ambulance run from every EMS unit in the state. So we had this enormous database and we were trying to get it real time. And we were doing that because one, we wanted to be able to better pattern care, but we also wanted to detect things like influenza. And I remember we started looking at those data during the 2009-2010 flu season. And it was a very unusual flu and it came earlier than expected. And sure enough, we saw a signal in emergency department data. That got the attention of Department of Homeland Security. And so we started using this kind of system as humans, as kind of a biomonitor. Now, obviously, Homeland was interested in things like bioterrorism, but clearly we were also interested in things like potential viruses. And our system started to detect influenza before influenza reports were even been sent out by the CDC or state health departments. 
And it was partially because we wanted to get data really quickly, really early, and we're looking for a signal. Um, in fact, I testified in 2015 in Congress that I thought this is a system that should be across the entire country. Mm. And um, that program unfortunately wasn't continued. Um, elements are, but it hasn't been used for that purpose. And I just keep wondering what would have happened if we had had that system in place for this COVID-19 pandemic. But having said that, I clearly learned the value of having comprehensive data sets, a public health perspective, even from clinical medicine, and the importance of having timely data linked to action. Just to follow up on that a little bit, um, you know, it's one of the questions I've been really interested in throughout this uh, pandemic is how data actually flows, and particularly from the perspective of physicians. So in that system you were just describing, really fascinating, how would that change the way that an average physician in an emergency department would act? So one of the things we were trying to do, and it was a remarkable partnership with the public health uh, department in the state of North Carolina, the National uh, uh, Department of Homeland Security, and of course all the clinicians uh, who are willing to contribute and be part of such a system. And one of the things that led up to answering your question about how you make a difference, you should know what we did with heart attack care in North Carolina. We had a big problem in North Carolina. We had one of the highest death rates for heart attack care. Hmm. And we decided to use this system linked to the series of hospitals and had a physician in every hospital in the state linked to this system. And everyone had to come up with a plan for what they would do with a heart attack patient. Some cases they'd give them a clot busting drug in the hospital, if they didn't have a cath lab, they had a cath lab and could open an artery, they'd be sent across county lines to that next hospital. Mm. And some of the hospitals in the rural parts of the state couldn't do any of that in time and literally would just go ahead and give an intervention in ambulance. So we had every single hospital and every single clinician associated with the hospital have a plan for what to do for every single person in the state based on where they were. So we thought about the same thing for influenza and other conditions. Let's have a plan for every single condition in every single hospital, and let's have an information system and a dashboard that would be available to the clinician to know if signals happened, mm -hmm. what the possible opportunities are, and to pre-plan what their strategy would be. In this, for influenza, it would be, let's be sure that we identify cases early. There are drugs that are effective in influenza if they're given early. Let's focus in on clusters and be sure that we not only do things to intervene in terms of social distancing, identifying cases, but also make sure we have vaccination programs for those areas deemed susceptible. And just because it's Homeland Security, what if it's not the flu? What if it's something else? How do we go ahead and make sure that system gets disseminated and those important measures of distancing and mask wearing and of cluster identification done rapidly? And that's integrating a clinical system emergency medicine is 24 7 365 days a week with a public health system which is thought of in more mm. longer term broad population-based aspects and in that case we did it with heart attack care and we wanted to do it with influenza care and any other pandemics or bioterrorism that came up so those were the kinds of things we were thinking about scott when we designed that system and those are the kinds of interventions that we had pre-planned uh, when these things arose what a, a fascinating model to think about and if i'm if i'm understanding correctly it's also it's a decentralization to a certain degree i mean you're describing a system that's alive with data and ways to channel that data so that you not that you would 
maybe reject what's coming out of CDC, but you don't have to wait for those kind of seasonal flu reports. And I know they're coming, they're feeding from more than a thousand probably points of input to CDC, but then it has to go back out from Atlanta across the country. I know I'm simplifying, but am I, am I in the right track? You are on the right track. And, and it's not that, the, that we wouldn't depend on the CDC. We'd welcome the CDC. The challenge is if you want to make a timely intervention, those channels of communication, the dissemination may be just too late. And so the idea was to go ahead and make that information available in a time frame that it's actionable with impact. And in emergency medicine, so severe influenza, severe COVID-19, or certainly any other kind of emergency, you really need to get this time frame down to less than 24 hours. And the only way to do that is to be sure you're communicating, not just across public health and the various levels of government, but with the clinicians and the facilities that can actually impact and make a difference in the care of that patient or of that population. So I'm sure you have noticed in the, these last six months that there are an awful lot of armchair public health experts and a lot of armchair medical school deans out there and a lot of people with a lot of hot opinions. Um, and, but I've been, I've been reluctant and I haven't had many clinicians um, on COVID calls up to now because obvious reasons people have been so busy. But I'm so glad to talk to you about this. And I just want to ask you kind of a basic question about the healthcare system in the United States. What's been revealed through these six months? The weaknesses, the strengths, can you give it sort of give us kind of your your grade of how the system has functioned under this tremendous stress? Difficult to give a grade, Scott, because from my end, it's either pass or fail. True enough. And um, uh, and you know you can go ahead and my worldview live or die, um, and I, and I have high quality of life or not. And and so I I I I understand how others might want to grade it. I think we should certainly take a look at this and see what lessons we've learned and be proactive uh, in, in, in intervening for the next one. There will be a next one, Scott. There, it's, it's inevitable. And so what do I think of that? Well, first of all, I have a very good colleague named Dr. Marla Gold who tells me that COVID shines a light on everything. And I think one of the things that COVID has shined a light on are the inequities in our healthcare system. And the inequities, unfortunately, have led to disproportionate burden. And I mean specifically that there are people who have been underserved by medicine um, and under-resourced uh, in this response to the pandemic. Uh, these are usually communities of color. Uh, these are areas where it's predictable, either by socioeconomic status, and frankly, where we know there are already challenges in healthcare outcomes at baseline. And so these groups aren't tested. Uh, these groups, um, unfortunately, uh, therefore aren't diagnosed early and there are then delays in terms of getting their care. And at times, um, the geographical constraints have them go to facilities that are already overwhelmed. And this has led to really challenging uh, issues. Um, and some of them are just due to population density. Uh, New York, for example, stopped doing resuscitations out in the field during the height of the COVID crisis, um, just because of the concerns for the personnel, understandably. Uh, but just imagine if, if you, even the access to emergency care is delayed and, and you end up in that result, you're not going to have a chance um, um, for advanced resuscitation and, and all the extraordinary um, uh, opportunities we have in critical care medicine uh, to really prolong life. Um, 
in, in, in any disease, but certainly with COVID. So I think that inequity and, and challenges is out there. I think another one is, is it highlighted um, the extraordinary um, opportunity we have for advances in biomedicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, imagine this, once within a month of this virus being reported, we had a sequence of, of the virus. Within uh, one or two months later, we had uh, a provisional vaccine candidate. Um, this is unheard of uh, in terms of the time frame of vaccine development. Uh, and so now the connection between those extraordinary advances in, uh, in discoveries and models um, now has to be translated to impact. And this is where we have another real challenge because uh, we need to get the hands, uh, 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 we need to get the vaccine in the hands of the people who need it. And while we put a huge national effort in doing so, and I am confident that our FDA is going to do the appropriate testing and that safety um, will be demonstrated uh, because we they can't afford not to, and the pharma companies that are associated can't afford not to, and I don't think the clinicians will accept it if they don't do it. But even if they do, having people take it. And one of the challenges, I've been watching these polls that show that um, at one first poll I saw said that 35% of the people in the country wouldn't take the vaccine and 5% weren't sure. The latest one I saw said that only 23% would take the vaccine. I, I guess that means that 77 wouldn't. And we need to be able to increase health literacy and have people understand uh, that vaccines are could be life-saving in this case and critical for our public health. The thing that's so challenging to me is that while the first reason that people gave for not wanting it is that they're concerned about safety. And so I think we need to be transparent about the testing and the safety data and what's been done. But the second one was they thought they'd get infected with the virus. That doesn't happen with these vaccines. It's just not possible. And so we really have a gap in terms of translational knowledge. And I could go on, Scott, but there are lots of different things that I think we're learning that are big, but I think they're gonna help us in the future take on bigger issues and better prepare the he- all for health in this country, if not the world, but let's take them on right now because we've got a pandemic to deal with and lives are being lost. One of the things about this disaster that's set it apart from recent disasters, and we've had our share in this country over the last two decades, is how much of it is private, how much of the suffering has taken place in spaces that that people can't see, either in nursing homes or in emergency rooms, hospitals, whatever it may be. Um, and there's, a, to me, a kind of a, a strange disconnect. You know, one of the most popular modes of popular culture in America is emergency room shows, right? Everybody has an idea in their mind of what happens in an emergency room and nobody wants to go there. <laughs> and I've been, I've been compelled by that and, and wondering about doctors right now in those settings. And, and you certainly can speak to this with some authority. What's happening in those emergency departments? What are the stressors? What's shining through? Can you take us in, inside a little bit? I don't, I don't know even how to ask this question, except just to ask you to talk a little bit about the experience of emergency room clinicians in this time. It's been a challenge, Scott. Now, first of all, I should just tell you, people who work in emergency departments are slightly different than, than most clinicians. One, we're used to making decisions uh, based on little information. Mm-hmm. Two, time becomes so important that you have to learn how to make those decisions quickly. And of course, 
we all learn from experience which ones are most effective. And that's based not only on our knowledge and what's happening out in the literature, but about our own experience and being able to work together as a team. So the teams are an inherent part of the emergency department. And so it's hard to separate physicians from nurses, from support staff, from clerks, uh, because it's all necessary in order to be successful in the care of these patients. And the burdens are real. Um, you know, the first burden was, of course, not understanding much about this virus um, and how infectious it was and what the best treatments were. The second one, it was so infectious that we knew we needed PPE and there were challenges in terms of matching the need for PPE for an individual provider, much less for the whole team. Uh, and uh, I think one of the challenges of that, of course, is that there have been many deaths across providers. Uh, and there was a recent death, unfortunately, of a resident uh, over the past weekend in Houston uh, who caught uh, the virus while caring for a patient in an emergency department. And th th this, this, this certainly gets distributed across the provider community. And then I think the last one is, is that they're really, uh, that there's still a journey to go. And, and, and the system's really been stressed because of these challenges. Uh, one of the interesting challenges that's been faced in emergency departments is that there really weren't that many patients because most of the people have been kept out. So the only patients coming in and, and many of these challenging places, um, certainly in New York during the epicenter, and but in places like Philadelphia, um, is that what you were seeing were just exclusively COVID patients. Well, then we were able to manage those patients um, through their journey in the ICU. And then the volumes went off. And when the volumes go down, then the challenges are stress to the healthcare system. And how are we gonna maintain our, our place? And when are people gonna come back who's, who need necessary care? And we're starting to see big delays of care with people with heart attacks and strokes, and even diseases that may not be as time sensitive, but just as deadly like cancer. And so now there's a burden of, we're, we're open, we're available, we're ready, mm. but we need you to come. And now, of course, we're all gearing up for flu season and flu season is typically a very busy time in emergency departments because just flu affects everybody. Well, now imagine the potential scenarios with both flu and COVID affecting everybody and it becomes quite stressful. And so I do think that there's a real stress challenge in terms of this unique pandemic, but also the journey that each and every provider and provider team has gone through over the last six months. just remind folks you're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking to Dr. Charles Cairns today about medicine, medical education, and COVID-19. And let's turn a little bit to the perspective of the medical school. And I want to just read a little something from an article that was out in the, um, this article was called Medical Students Experience COVID-19 Crunch um, by Julie Robner. It's appeared in Kaiser Health News. Just going to read a sentence of it. It said, it's a nightmare scenario for the class of 21, 2021, said Jake Berg, a fourth year student at Kentucky College of Osteopathic Medicine. In March, students were abruptly pulled out of hospitals and medical offices where they normally work with professionals to learn about treating patients. Over the space of less than two weeks, he said medical students in pretty much the entire country transitioned from seeing patients in person to learning online. Okay, so that's one story from that March. Can you 
corroborate that? Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like to be a, a dean of a, a very large urban medical school at that time? Well, it was challenging, Scott. Um, first of all, uh, I want to say I'm just so proud, though, of uh, our educational team, um, of our dean group, of our department chairs, of our faculty, but most of all of our students who proved to be extraordinarily resilient. Um, but nonetheless, it was a challenge. Um, we had to pull our students out of clinical rotations. Um, we had to shut down even our in-person classes and go to online uh, virtual classes. And, and that lasted for up to four months. Um, we're appreciative to the governor of Pennsylvania who, who wrote a special order that allowed medical and nursing students to go back um, and into clinical settings uh, in early June. Um, but that still means that they lost three months. And frankly, the cycles in medical education are you do your first year, second year, go into the clinical areas, your third and fourth year. There are deadlines at the end of your third year for choosing what specialty you are going to go in and getting your dean's letters approved. Then you have to go interview for places in the fourth year. And then there's something called the national match each month. Well, literally people list what their choices are for specialty and location. And then those same residency programs and location list what their choices are. And then a big national match occurs on one day. Well, that was all virtual um, this year. And that whole process has been virtual. And so all of those opportunities that people have to explore different places or to show themselves in front of uh, in front of the program directors, or frankly, just to have the experiences um, um, that they would want to have in preparation for a key point in their career, which is the decision choice of specialty, have right. all been compromised because of this. Um, so that's that's the challenge. The opportunity, the opportunity is uh, again very resilient faculty. Students have been engaged in, in, in doing courses virtually. I have the pleasure of teaching in two of those courses right now that we're doing virtually, and our students are extraordinarily engaged. Um, all the deans of the medical schools get on a call every week, and we talk about the challenges and opportunities to be sure we're coordinated. And so we at least understand or trying to adapt to the challenges of our medical school and our students and our residency programs at a time where clearly we need physicians and we need physicians who are well-trained, but we need to care for each and every one of those physicians through their career path. So that's that's the opportunity, and yet those are the real challenges, Scott. So there's a, there's a dean's call that happens with deans of medical schools across the country, literally connecting in this way, sort of sharing what they're learning at this time, how they're managing these, these issues? That's right. It's sponsored by the American Association of Medical Colleges, hmm. uh, which is the national organization of American medical colleges. Uh, and uh, they've, they've been very thoughtful and proactive in terms of the response to the pandemic. And so uh, we've had weekly calls, um, uh, at least up through this mass, past month, hmm. on, on uh, what the challenges are, getting updates on, on what latest scientific and policy information um, uh, that would affect us uh, uh, could be, and then how do we share best practices, and how do we have frank conversation of the challenges, uh, and and the challenges are real, um, uh, and um, it's good to have a have a support group to at least have a discussion. Of course, we still are individual colleges, and we have our own admissions policies, and we have our own student support policies, and and we've got to do our best for our students, uh, but it's good to have some best practices. 
Just to stay with this um, issue a little bit of the transition to online, you know, in, in I'm a department head of a history department and uh, many of my faculty had never taught online before and like you, were very proud of how hard they worked and, and they, they brought their material up online. Um, and I think we're doing a great job. But I, I can envision that and I can envision that transition for lots of different kinds of education. It is hard for me to get my mind around how you take medical education into the virtual space and and do it in the ways that you've done it before. Obviously there will be differences, but can you speak in a little more granular, like, like what has to change? How do you modify some of that pedagogy into the distance, into the remote space? Well, you know, it's interesting. Medicine has been undergoing a revolution um, uh, in medical education in particular. You know, I talked about the, the technology revolution, discovery revolution that allowed us to sequence this virus and develop vaccines so quickly. Um, uh, equally, on the medical side, we've really been emphasizing simulation and getting very sophisticated in terms of using technology to, uh, to help educate uh, and even train physicians. So it wasn't like there was a, an enormous technology goal. But the problem is, is that the patient experience is one that is very difficult to replicate. The second one is there are skills that are hands-on. And while we've gotten very good with simulation, there still is a gap. But the third one is there really is this important component of medicine, being able to relate to someone. Obviously, uh, being able to connect and get the information necessary, but also, you know, to serve the patient in terms of their needs, which aren't always defined by a disease state. And that has been a challenge uh, for our students to learn, um, especially since some of the hardest hit facilities are those where people who have come from diverse backgrounds uh, and frankly uh, are necessary uh, student experiences. Um, so I think we've adapted in, in terms of, of doing as much as we can with the knowledge transfer and I think with the skills transfer, but that intersection with the patient and frankly, the unpredictability of disease and the social determinants of health and how to combine medical knowledge with the other components to have people get back to health, that's been a challenge, Scott. So this transition to telemedicine um, has already been underway then, I guess, in maybe sort of a, uh, without as much urgency, obviously. Do you think there's a going back? At some point we'll have vaccines and people can return to spaces like classrooms and doctor's offices, but is this an inflection point in the way that medicine is going to be practiced? I think it is. You know, one of the things that we talk a lot about both as a Dean's group, but also in terms of, of, of where we're moving uh, with medicine is to connect directly with people using technology. And I think that we now have seen an enormous expansion in telehealth. Uh, and so I think it's here to stay. Uh, the question is, um, you know, how do we optimize, if not maximize it? Because we now know the limitations of telehealth. Um, I think that we have to be sure that we we maintain that 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 experience in terms of responding to the patient's needs. But there are certain things that you can only do in person with examinations. There are potential technology solutions to help facilitate that, but we need to start working on those. Um, I think that. Um, the best story I heard was that uh, 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 one of the major medical centers had done a total of six telehealth visits in the pre previous year. They now are doing 2,000 a month. So when you see this kind of 
transition to to a technology and an approach, that means that it is absolutely um, here to stay. And um, I, I think you'll see it also open up opportunities for access to people who haven't had it. And I think you'll also see it um, uh, take on some some technology needs that we hadn't seen before that'll be incorporated. But it's good for our students to be exposed to it. I'm sorry that our students had to rely upon it. Right. Yeah. You you wouldn't have wanted to have to be learning it literally while it's so urgently urgently required. But back to this point you were making about the inequalities in the system that the COVID has shined light on. There has been some discussion. You know, this idea that we would just take our economy up online and education and everything else. An assumption there was that the digital divide in the United States had already been closed, and I think we found that that's not the case, and that's affected a lot of big cities and their ability to provide public education. You see something like that in medicine as well? Can, what are the, what's the digital divide of telehealth? Well, clearly, you know, there are places where the internet's just not as accessible uh, mm -hmm. to many people. Part of it in rural locations is literally it's not accessible. Part of it is cost. If you imagine if you have using a cellular device and you're paying per a bit of information, it's just expensive. Um, and then the last piece is um, that I think people do have access to these smart devices, but not everyone is comfortable with them. Uh, and I think, for example, with elderly patients, for sure, and then uh, people um, uh, who have a language barrier. And so I think we've seen all of those three elements um, in, the, in the pandemic. Um, but, I, but I do think that that's gonna be an opportunity. Um, th there are cultural challenges as well. I mean, uh, you know, when we talk about contact tracing apps and putting things on uh, a device, there's some people who just don't feel comfortable with the idea of downloading something on their phone that allowed them to be tracked and much less being able to do their personal private medical consultation on such a device. And so I think we're going to have to use the web a little bit more thoughtfully, maybe come up with alternative approaches to, to mobile um, uh, kind of, of, of uh, approaches as opposed to just apps. Um, but clearly, uh, there are an awful lot of people who are willing to download an app, who are willing to, to talk to a physician, be prescribed medicines, and do their follow-up. Um, through telehealth. So following the murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement that emerged from that, we found an intersection there between health and structural racism in America and the extraordinary um, revelation that came out later that George Floyd himself had been had tested positive for COVID-19, which speaks to this issue of health concerns in underserved communities. How did that, you know, so there you have a disaster already underway and then another disaster converge with that. What did that, what did that put on the table in, from your perspective in your office? What kind of concerns did students bring? How did you react? Sure. What was, what happened in that moment? Well, it was challenging for all of us to see the events. Uh, of, of the summer, and frankly, there were there were incidents before, of course, uh, George Floyd, that were deeply disturbing, widely distributed on social media, and frankly, really affected our students, our faculty, and our staff, especially those of color. And frankly, our students were upset. Our students, you know, who are just chosen from just an extraordinary pool of talent, uh, we get nearly 14,000 applicants uh, for our medical school. We have a class of 260. So really to get into our medical school, you have to be extraordinarily competitive. 
And so these people who have just been high achievers, you know, throughout their entire life and career, come to medical school, are giving of themselves to help patients and help communities and, and really provide a service, who then feel that just based on the color of their skin, they're being disrespected and their lives don't matter. That's a tough message to hear from anyone, but especially from these students who we've so carefully chosen and put so much attention in developing. And so we did respond. We had a whole series of town halls uh, to get some of the issues out. Uh, we started looking at uh, our programs in the community so that we could be proactive in addressing both systemic racism as well as some of these healthcare inequities. And we've invested heavily in our Office of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion and incorporated new elements uh, across our curriculum, across our research endeavors, and across all the missions of the College of Medicine. And one of the heartening things, Scott, is that now our healthcare system partners are doing the same thing. So we now can find synergy, not just within our college, not just in our university, in the communities that we serve, including our students, but now extend that into the healthcare facilities that of course serve those populations and those patients. And I think that's what we need to do is to continue this uh, because that's not just an opportunity, it's an obligation of a leading medical school. And clearly we've been doing that for over 170 years. When you look at our predecessor institutions of Hahnemann, the Women's Medical College and the Medical College of Pennsylvania. What you've just described is it resonates with things I've heard um, from other guests that um, students, students were at the lead and I, I think that opens up some radical potential in this time. I mean, just to speak more broadly about how medical education may be changing, we were talking about some technical elements mm -hmm. of that. But what does the Black Lives Matter movement pretend possibly for medical education more broadly, do you think? How can it look different? Admissions was one area you mentioned. What are some of the other things on the table that might literally change? We're having this discussion about higher ed more broadly, but in medical schools, what could change? Well, I hope that many things will change. Um, you know, I, I, I've always been a champion uh, for diversity in medicine. And frequently I'm asked, um, I've been in roles where I've been at public institutions and asked in public forums by elected officials, why this commitment uh, to diversity in our medical school class? And I start with the first dictum, and that is we know that people who share the same culture and language of the patients they serve have better outcomes. So I see that as a clinical and a scientific imperative. So there is the first need for a diversification of our medical school class and incorporation of understanding language, culture, and community. The second one is, is that clearly there are lessons to be learned to help our community. And there are lessons that they can teach us on how to help others. And so we really need to incorporate people from those communities, engage with those communities, and of course, serve those communities as we move forward. And then the last piece is Drexel University College of Medicine has been committed to the service of communities across wide domains. Hahnemann was one of the first medical schools in the United States to have an international mission founded in 1848, 1850, Women's Medical College was the first medical college for women in the world. And then when it became co-ed, it became the Medical College of Pennsylvania. And that is our, our medical school. That is right. what evolved in the Drexel University College of Medicine. 
So this 170 year history of incorporating broader communities, of embracing diversity and being proactive in terms of the workforce is something entirely consistent with what we're doing. But you can tell by the events of this summer and frankly, the health inequities that have resulted that we have a lot of work to do, Scott, and we wanna be a leader in contributing to those solutions and enhancing that workforce. You sound like a historian, Charles. You, you just drew on a 170 year uh, trajectory to find important lessons about what these kinds of, some of these concerns in this case around um, segregating women out of medical education to draw from those strengths to apply to today. I, I find that very moving um, and important in these times. Um, let me just ask you- that, Scott. First, the first Native American woman physician, yeah. um, the first uh, African-American woman physician, all came out of our medical school. So, um, but clearly we still have opportunities beyond that, Scott. But sure, thank you absolutely. for calling me a historian. You're such a distinguished historian. I just get to learn from our extraordinary legacy center uh, that exists at uh, Jackson University College of Medicine. It's tremendous. It's one of the one of the best collections of its type in the in the world, and and fundamental to understanding the history of medicine and nursing in in America. Um, we're almost up on time, and we get a couple more questions in if we if we can. Just remind folks you're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking to Dr. Charles Cairns, the dean of the Drexel University. College of Medicine today. So um, let me ask this. This has been a time of um, some political strife, to put it mildly. And that's normal in America, but not like this. When you layer these multiple disasters on top of our normal election year struggles. I'm particularly interested to know what you thought about this, because thinking about a student in high school who's got great grades, they're interested in medicine, they're, they wanna, they're thinking, I'm gonna go to med school. And they are turning on TV and they're seeing Dr. Burks, Dr. Fauci. They're seeing physicians who are giving briefings. They're getting front pages of New York Times. You know, we've, we're seeing doctors in the headlines a way we haven't in a while. And they're seeing another side of things. They're seeing physicians placed in positions of um, public scorn. Uh, they're seeing uh, just news that came out yesterday that from inside, as far as I can tell, Dr. Fauci's unit, uh, the National Institute of, I'm going to get this wrong, allergy and infectious diseases. Infectious diseases, right. Um, somebody in the public relations shop there had set up a social media account and was actually trying to to drag his name through the mud. I mean, so you're seeing two different sides of things here. The obvious like reverence that people have for medicine this moment. And on the other side, this very politicized, in some cases, even dangerous, considering that Dr. Fauci receives, he actually receives protection, physical protection at this time. Um, I wonder, you know, what do you say to that student who is seeing medicine thrust into the center of American politics? Well, first of all, um, I encourage our students to be leaders. 
And I point out that the challenges of the world currently include medicine. And we talked earlier about the need for health literacy. We talked earlier about the need to take on health inequities. And we talked about the need to be able to translate these wonderful new discoveries, technologies and care models into communities that need them. And that's going to require that they be experts, not only in terms of scientific knowledge of medicine, but how to translate it, how to communicate it, and how to be a leader within their profession and probably in broader society. You know, Dr. Fauci is the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. And you should know that we have grants. In fact, I have a grant through the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases on COVID-19. And what we're trying to do is to understand the host response or how, why people who get infected can have such a wide range of reactions. Some people have no symptoms. Some people have trouble breathing. Some people go into intensive care units. And unfortunately, some people die. And we don't fully understand the distinctions. We don't understand how long protection lasts or what it looks like. And we certainly have lots of opportunities to enhance treatments for those who do get infected and do suffer these terrible consequences. And frankly, Dr. Fauci has been at the leader, not only of that institute, but of this entire movement, not just for the United States, but for the world. So keep your eye on what's important. There are absolutes in medicine. The germ theory is, is real. COVID's very infectious. COVID can be deadly. We have ways to mitigate its spread by wearing a mask, by maintaining social distancing, by washing our hands. We should all be doing that. And even when we get vaccines, we need to be sure that we get into the hands of the people who need them, that we've done the studies to show it's effective in all populations and the populations that aren't affected, then we need to figure out other ways to treat them. That's what medicine's all about. That's what the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease is doing. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're teaching all of our students to be, are to be leaders in terms of that science, in terms of that community translation, and to be a champion for each and every individual patient and person around them. Last question for you, uh, Drexel, like every university in the United States had to, had a long summer of discussion about what to do this fall. And we're seeing Many decision, different decisions were made. Drexel made the decision to stay remote for most students. Um, I expect you were part of the, I know you were part of the group that had to deliberate that. It must have been quite a difficult set of considerations. Um, what are you looking at going into the winter? With this, that decision, we own that decision. That's where we are with it. Seeing what's happening at Illinois and other places personally, uh, I'm glad that you made the, that decision. But, what are you looking at for the next round of decisions, which I'm assuming is literally being made real soon? Well, first of all, Scott, the president of Drexel University, John Fry, has clearly made the health of the students, the faculty and staff, the number one priority. So I can tell you whatever we decide, I can tell you that's the lens that we've been charged uh, to, to, to look at it through. And we are certainly learning from other institutions. We're tracking data. That's why we have such a comprehensive system of testing as well as surveillance. Frankly, I helped co-develop that app we're using for the health tracker. And you can imagine, given my background in situational awareness across states and in the country, I wanted to be sure we had situational awareness 
here at Drexel. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I wanted to make sure there were individuals um, who could track their own symptoms to get the health information they need. The whole idea here, Scott, is to have a very healthy ecosystem consistent with John Fry's expectation of us, but also in support of all the people who intersect with our university. So we'll keep following the data from the system. We'll keep looking at the other institutions around us and nationally. We'll keep following what's happening within Philadelphia. Um, but obviously, um, safety and health are going to be the primary concerns. You can catch COVID calls any every weekday, Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. And I want to just thank my guest today, Dr. Charles Cairns, the Dean of the Drexel University College of Medicine. I know you are extremely busy and actually got off a call uh, to take this call. And I really appreciate your time today, Charles. Thanks for your leadership. Thanks for having me, Scott. And I greatly respect your work. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow at five o'clock.